Mounty, please walk us through a parallel timeline of magma chem and geology. Yeah, this is a history of uh, magma chem put on a timeline leading up to the UDH model, the ultra deep hydrothermal model. So it started back uh, in the 70s with uh, Stan and I at the University of, of uh, Arizona. And together we have degrees in philosophy, engineering, and geology. And there's this great quote that we just love. It's geology and in general science has become islands of conformity surrounded by interdisciplinary oceans of ignorance. And we took these three disciplines and uh, we sailed the oceans between them. And, and that's kind of the beginnings of magma chem, but it even goes back way, be, way earlier than that when uh, there was a boy in Northern Wisconsin boy, born in a, in a blizzard and, and a little later, a boy was born in, uh, on Christmas morning in California. That was Stan and I. And we both had neighbors that hid minerals and rocks and uh, fossils for us to find. They were mineralogists actually. And that got us started. And, and, and what, the point I'm trying to make is that we started <clears throat> with our boots on the ground. And uh, magma chem started that. The patterns that we eventually have, uh, have looked at started there. So mapping is the very beginning. And uh, then the, if you look at this timeline in general, uh, you've got mantle, crust, and then serpentosphere. So you can kind of divide it into three, three parts. And uh, the mantle began, uh, well, in the 70s. Stan will get into exactly when that happened. We founded Magma Chem in 1983, worked on, on the mantle, and, and it's really the source. And uh, then we got into the crust and the processes in the crust. Uh, there's this debate that's been going on. My phone rang. John Mark Stouty. I wonder if I should answer this. John? <laughs> John Mark? <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to Why don't you call Troy? He's one of the co-founders. special treatment. <laughs> He's allowed to make those kinds of interruptions. All right, the password has been saved. Anyway, okay. <laughs> So uh, let's see, what else should I talk about here? Well, we're getting out of the, the mantle-focused geology, petrology, and everything that MagmaChem was doing. And then we're, we're obviously getting into the crust, and that, that integration between the two is, is amazing. That's part of the big story. Yeah, it's, there's really a debate uh, been going on for about 500 years between Descartes and Agricola. Descartes was source. And Agricola was lateral leach, getting you know metals out of the crust, and uh, I think magma chem has solved that uh, debate because uh, you know what the mantle does and what the source does is 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 in our science, and then uh, the serpentosphere. I think what started that, besides low metal prices, and we started looking at the oil and gas industry was gave a paper at an AAPG conference and uh, Exxon Research came up to me after the paper and said, when we do the accounting for super giant oil and gas accumulations, the books don't balance. You have any idea what we're missing? 
And uh, it's a long story, but eventually we uh, discovered this process of serpentinization, which has been overlooked actually since uh, the Penrose Conference in 1968 when they rejected Harry Hess's idea that there was serpentinite down in the Moho. Anyway, uh, so we eventually came up with this idea of the serpentosphere, right. uh, another sphere on planet Earth. And, and then uh, we got together with uh, the Norwegians and uh, the ultra-deep hydrothermal model started evolving. It's a window of time uh, from kind of analog when we were in the field and we did things by hand and, and, and now we're in this digital age. And, and, and there's this kind of this window between those two times when a lot of technologies were developing like age date, age, age date technologies and, and analytical chemistry, computers, geophysics, GIS, satellite imagery. And without that, it would have been very difficult for us to uh, synthesize and integrate as much data as we have been able to do. So it's been a very special time from the 70s until, you know, about this, uh, the early 2000s. Well, to today, Monty, you're talking about a transition and a window of time right now that allows us to take this goofy equipment that Stan absolutely hates, but it allows us to talk about this. It allows us to put this out and it allows us to back it up with a long presentation that everybody can watch on their own time and, uh, and take their, their own way. There, that wasn't possible before. And so this information is being delivered fast as possible and as accurate as possible. And it's at this window of time right now before everything gets a little too out of control, maybe. <laughs> uh, Monty, if you're done, we're going to jump to Stan. Stan is going to say a little bit about his take on this parallel timeline, and then we're going to move on. Yeah, while I was watching this, I had a minor micro epiphany. Uh, you see the thing up here called hard rock and soft rock. Okay, so we, we came up through the hard rock school actually hard knock school of the University of Arizona. And um, then around 2000, we graduated into what ultimately is the soft rock school. And of course that's oil, petroleum, geology, et cetera, in the conventional sense. But really what has happened here over the last 20 years, 30 years, is we've integrated hard rock and soft rock. And hard rock essentially is what you'll see that we developed was called the magma metal series classification and all of them. And that was pretty much together by 1991. The identification of the serpentosphere, which is the Earth's moho layer, and the idea that that is, especially in the oceanic basins, is serpentine group rock, um, came in 2007 when, uh, and when we were on our way to Norway in a uh, business lounge of Northwest Airlines. But <laughs> that ultimately uh, traded on one of the Norwegians, uh, who I don't know whether he showed up yet or not, Martin Hovland, who coined what we were doing at the time as UDH, which was ultra-deep hydrocarbon, uh, but linked to serpentinization. But serpentinization is not ultimate, serpentine is not all, ultimately a hard rock. It's a soft rock. 
And uh, it is the source of all of the soft rock hydrothermalism that leads to oil, saline deposits, black shales, uh, maybe 70% of the rock on the sedimentary rock record may have something to do with a serpentinization process and may arrive in high-density brines from the deep. So that's what led us in here. So it turns out the soft rock story is bigger, bigger than the hard rock story. Um, let's, let's take it, let's rock it back to 1978. Let's go to the next slide. Oh, okay, so. This is Stan Holding. Yeah, the geology magazine. And uh, that's the cart, what that cartoon made the cover. You see the cover go up into the, right, right there. And, and uh, yeah. it wouldn't have been possible, nor would this meeting of today have been possible without this guy, who unfortunately now is now dead. His name's obviously Bill Dickinson. And he saved that article. Uh, it was under a lot of uh, peer review fire at the time, specifically from one of the guys was the president of GSA, and he didn't like it, so he told his uh, editor to can it. And then after a whole bunch of stuff, which I don't need to go into, uh, this bill wrote a letter, and all of a sudden it completely turned everything around. I had no idea that this was going down. But I really want to give a shout out to Dr. William R. Dickinson, uh, great geologist, mentor, um, came, ultimately met him when he came to Tucson. Actually, I had something to do with getting him to Tucson. Just a great guy. And, and unfortunately, he's moved on. Okay, so. That paper, though, in a sense, and that graduate degree and getting through that when you were pretty much out of money, out of time, you were done with school. Officially, you had an amazing thesis, enough for Dickinson to, to do what he did and push this thing forward. But what came right after that was very interesting to me. And that's, you had the opportunity to, for three options as a professional out of graduate school. You could have went consulting, industry, or academia. You had those three, and state geologists. You chose the state geologist route right away, but you always kept true along this whole story as a consultant, and you never took those really crazy salaries and the opportunity to go with a big school or go with a big operator. That's, that's really important to me. Well, yeah, that, that gets at the idea that everything that Magma Chem has done has been so – integrated with the overall magma metal series serpentosphere concept at the end of the day, although the serpentosphere didn't show up on this one. But here you can see the beginning of the layered earth concept where I took a modified peacock petrological uh, classification and tied it into depth to a subduction zone, which comes from uh, Bill Dickinson's and Trevor Hatherton's uh, potassium depth correlation and but I integrated it to petrochemistry and that hadn't really been done before other than they had linked it into potassium and depth but not the ultimately whole rock and then when I was doing this I noticed that certain kinds of mineral deposits like copper deposits tied into that CA thing the AC thing was tied into lead zinc things and silver things uh, and on and on and on uh, and that ultimately led to the magma metal series mega chart let's go to the next slide which was 
initially put together at the behest of Ray Morley coming out of a short course in Salt Lake says, I'll pay you to do this because I want, want some kind of visual for my guys. And Monty is trying to blame Gary Heinemeyer for this. He, he may or may not have something to do with it. I'll have to get Gary's version of it. Uh, but anyway, that was an early take on what Magma Metal Series was. Sorry for the and quality at the time, it was called Magma Series. The key thing about this, as it evolved later on into this 2007 version, which is still the current version, uh, is that magmas are the source of metals. So it's a source-based classification based on descriptive petrochemistry and mineralogy. And the other link is an empirical link to the metal contents and compositions of the associated time and space mineral deposits. So that all got folded into here. Now, hmm. that then, then developed into what ultimately is a layered earth model because I took the Dickinson Hatherton KH classification and after we had all of these things sort of put together empirically said oh let's do a fun little exercise and let's see what uh what the potassium depth thing is for the layers between these boundaries and so that's this little chart here which you can read at your leisure uh and then we said, well, that's, that's somewhere I've seen something similar to that. Oh, yeah, maybe let's go into the geophysical literature. Bingo. This was what was in the geophysical literature at the time. And the matchup between the geophysical layering and the seismic data and the geochemical model was striking. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, that was a huge epiphany. And... Uh, said you're on a high for about 10 years off of that. Well, I'm still on a high. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you got isotopic data with this. Uh, the, the yeah, over here is the iso uh, iso isotopic data. You know over you here is the metal contents of the mineral deposits. There's a lot of stuff on this thing which you can read at your leisure. I don't want to get into a rabbit hole. If it's a quick answer, because I just, while you were talking, I was thinking, you know how you can, you can predict what was happening or what the implied tectonics are under an oil field based on type one versus type two? Yeah. How does that kind of concept correlate to the metals side of the business? Well, as it turns out, yeah. Um, this pink layer, which is our quartz alkaline layer, that there's a lot of oil deposits that, initially start with peridotites that come in and start in that layer. Mm -hmm. And that's the Kufer Schiefers of the worlds. And then the, uh, the guys from this part layer are ultimately you have things like gold deposits. We, we now think that the homestake type gold deposits are magnesium slash calcic layer sourced. If you're seeing that stuff, you're in flat subduction. Yeah, in terms of uh, tectonic setting, usually these are best maximized in a flat subduction scenario, and these are you see in steeper subduction scenarios. Wow. Okay, sorry, uh, that was cool. Uh, okay, so at the end of the day, Stan, what was cool and uh, it's something that Monty just brought up, the movie Moneyball and how they came out with this new algorithm to pick baseball players and make World Series championships, and everyone said, not going to work, you're out to lunch, get over it. And then with time, it, it proved to be successful. And so the same thing in a similar way happened to you guys with the geologic community. And with time, you guys have contributed an unbelievable amount of 
actual well, resources. Especially on the on the metal side. We, we right. ultimately developed this model into a very specific, predictive, uh, target-oriented model at the drill hole scale. And that led to and contributed to the discovery of all of these things. Each one and of these can be found. We'll have the success list on the website, right? We'll have that available yeah. in the publications. Yeah, you if can you go want through. to get into the gory details of that. Well, the coolest part to me, and I think to everybody watching, is that how did you actually start breaking down the data? And in that success list, which is a very long document, you actually take the time to explain in 1984, you received the geophysics data, then you received structure maps, then you or whatever it was, and you started just chipping away and putting it ultimately into the geochemical vector. Yeah, and all of these at the end of the day were, were rolled into the global database and just added into the whole magma metal series concept. Right. So these were all tests right. of that mega chart. And by not taking employment level. from anybody, you stayed as a consultant. You said, give me I'll give you two years with this data, then it's mine. Well, we, we did like this on a consulting basis. Right. And that was a very deliberate piece of the business model because uh, I didn't want to work for an Exxon where Exxon gets what you do and says, see you later. Uh, and you never get to use that data again. Now, we, I did make a few deals with the devil, including Exxon. They got all of my uh, <laughs> hard stand. copies of the uh, time slice math we did in the Western U.S. And it's in a salt mine somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> where's this mine? <laughs> I think it's in Oklahoma. Maybe somebody out in that audience knows where the Exxon salt is. <laughs> we need mine to get is. in that thing. Uh, but that's that's just to kind of button up a a reality of of how this model actually makes predictions that are real. You predict that this drill hole is going to hit something, and it does, and it becomes real. And that's you know at the end of the day, the sometimes model sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes, our, of course. But our success rate is a lot higher than the typical success right. rate. And just like the saying goes, you get a dry hole. Well, you probably learn more from those dry holes than you did from the ones you actually hit. So it it all goes into well, everything's a learning experience, right? Now this is Miss Jan, Doctor Rasmussen, Rasmussen. Rasmussen. Gosh, Jan, I'm sorry. She's the whole reason why we have publications for you guys to have at your fingertips. She did a crazy amount of work on the back end, allowing us to integrate it into this website. That's all, it's a relational database. So when you type in Serpentosphere, it pops up Serpentosphere uh, papers and publications. And it's really, really good. And that's because she's been an amazing part of this wheel for since when? What did she say? 19... Well, 1978 is when we first really started to get going together as a, uh, on a collegial basis. The land of Cochise. Where we put together these road logs, which are still well used. That's when she and I got, she started to become quite intrigued with the whole, what would become the Magma Metal Series thing. And in the early 90s, late 80s, she came up to Seattle. That's where I was at the time and rifled through my database and put this uh, neural network study together, which is basically a PhD in magma chem that she got at uh, the University of Arizona. Incredible story in itself. Yeah, I don't want to, I was going to be on the committee, but I I won't go into that story, (laughs) but... uh, the, the coolest part is, man, I mean, machine learning and algorithm and, and all that kind of stuff, neural nets. I mean, she, she did it. She, well, well, the computer did it at a very fairly primitive level, frankly, but, uh, 
nevertheless. Not as powerful as Stan's brain. Well, Stan's brain is always out trying to figure out something else like we, <laughs> we just did a few minutes ago. Right. Okay. Uh, and then we also worked together on the Yucca Mountain, which was a, we did a lot of work in Nevada to typing all the mineral systems. And uh, we published that. And that actually did catch a piece of uh, UDH as related to oil deposits in Nevada, Railroad Valley type ones. Right. Of which the two Norwegians are aware that we have one over in uh, Snake Valley in Utah that's still waiting to be looked at. That's one of the ones that's in our queue to be discovered. Right. Okay. Let's, uh, let's let Monty explain and talk about his history with you uh, through the time, and then we'll, we'll move into the actual you know, technical presentation shortly after that. Monty? <laughs> well, it started uh, in grad school at University of Arizona. We are in a volcanogenic massive sulfide uh, seminar, and there's this tall guy with a beard. He stands up at all the graduate students, all the professors there, and, and we're just puzzling over this mystery of volcanogenic massive sulfides. And he just, every once in a while, he'd say something. And I said, this guy thinks differently than anybody I've ever seen. And uh, I, I think it, it really has to do with, he calls it anomalies. You know, he sees anomalies and he puts the anomalies together. I call it pattern recognition. He, he recognizes a pattern between anomalies. And he was doing that during that uh, seminar, and I, I had to meet him. So I met him and dragged him out to my thesis area, which was Stockton Pass, looking at some uh, shear, zone, a shear zone in Precambrian rocks that was a big mystery. And actually, this picture here is Stan and I, at that time, kind of overlooking my thesis area. And... It, it's so prophetic. We're looking into this fog. We had no had no idea what would happen uh, 40 oh, years later. And uh, on the right here is uh, us, uh, you know, 40 years later. 40, right. I believe it's 40 years. But uh, I, I think, you know, this thing about pattern recognition, Stan can get more into how he thinks of it. I was just reading... Uh, his little essay on the lost art of geologic mapping. And, and he's, you know, Stan is a master at geologic mapping. I'm not too bad either. We both were kind of stars in our uh, field camp. So we started, as I said before, with our boots on the ground. It, it all goes down to geologic mapping. But that, that, that essay he wrote is, I mean, it's creative writing. He gets so passionate about it and uh so poetic it's 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 really a, a neat thing i will have to post that uh yeah article for you guys to read because i was going to read some excerpts but i think stan would go come on monty <laughs> you're just getting a little bit too warm and fuzzy here but <laughs> right he's scoffing on this side yeah i mean beautiful language in that but but that, it really boils right. down to that. That's, that's where our roots are, are on the rocks. And that's what we're doing is we're reading a story written in the rocks. And So uh, you were kind of a field extension. Obviously, you're an incredible mapper, incredible geoscientist. Your structural analysis of anything we've ever talked about is always just fascinating to me. Obviously, you're at a, a very high level as a geoscientist. But in relationship with Stan and relative to Stan, 
was that kind of the teamwork throughout the years? It was like, I got to be over here. Monty, I need you in Mexico for seven years, breaking rocks, collecting data. That's right. It's, Not it's, exactly. It's, this is such a long story. It's hard <laughs> okay, to okay. get into well, we'll the get... details right now. But to right. think that we've been together this long, we have to live a thousand miles apart. <laughs> burn each other uh, out yeah, right. yeah. oh they're absolutely yin and yang i'm blown away that it to complete opposites in every way you can imagine yes. complete opposites except for the story we're re reading in the rocks and geology uh, somehow is able to keep you guys together and your brothers a thousand miles apart yeah it's a, this magnetic approach is is the pat is the big pattern it, it's it's the threads that hold everything together yeah yeah that's so, that's what we want to share with you guys. Yeah. Okay. Dan comes into the story pretty early in the 80s, right? Yeah. So, Monty, you want to say something just real quick about Dan? We won't read this. It's just for, yeah. for people to, to have. This is part of the presentation. <laughs> yeah, Dan has got extraordinary talent in, 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 in the library, in compilation, putting things together. He's, he's been just a solid foundation for Stan and I. Over the years, he's been... He's been working with us since 1985, I think. I think that's when 84. He 84. It's uh, he's a he's a very close friend, and he kind of lives sort of halfway yeah, between great. us. <laughs> yeah, he's he's great. He's great. Uh, okay, and then there's me, and all I gotta say is, <laughs> I got no, I got no, I don't hold a candle to anything in this operation. I showed, I sold everything. My wife and family was in support of this idea that there is a message that's coming out of Sonoda, Arizona. And if I plant myself there and dedicate the rest of my life to this, I think something really, really cool can actually happen. And so I did it. Here I am. And this is one year since I, we did that. Me and my wife and a brand new baby and a baby on the way. I met Monty, I met Stan, and I mean, this is standing on the back of Monty's property in Evergreen, Colorado, and, and you know, that, yeah, that's kind of a random picture, and it might have some other things going on, but more importantly is I sat there, and I questioned, and I questioned, I was dazed with him, questioning and looking at the data, and Monty has an incredible way of explaining and articulating good enough to really understand the broad context. And then I meet Stan and he's going broad context. I mean, get into the gory detail. <laughs> and now I have reached my intellectual limits daily with Stan trying to break this up. But Monty took me out to this outcrop in Denver, it clearly an inject type that was popping just straight through Precambrian rock. And I just, I remember standing there, I, I grab a rock, he goes, look at that. And I'm, I put my hand lens up, he goes, who taught you how to hold a hand lens? Hold it like this. And I'm going, <laughs> wow, Monty's like the, he's just the real deal is, is my opinion. And then, the, and then we, we, uh, we did a field trip out in the Franklin mountains. And that's when I realized getting Stan and Monty together in the Franklins, which is that picture that Monty was talking about on his slide. That's when I went, there is definitely a totally different interpretation to the basin that I've been studying for the past five years. What is this? And I, I want to know Stan, it's an, honor to to be here daily with you and for the opportunity that you gave me let's go ah. okay so what we're doing right now is sort of writing a a book on uh and, and it's going to come out as a series of webinars and then those will get punched into a, a full-blown manuscript and it ultimately is the story of 
uh, the UDH component of the classification applied to the origin of oil. And the origin of oil, doesn't, it starts with and it doesn't quite end with. There's a few other things you can see here along that it's related to all of those things uh, that turned out to, from, a, from the magma metal series UDH perspective to be highly anomalous with respect to the conventional wisdoms about oil occurrence and formation. Uh, and I might say that just about every subject, in, like even porphyry coppers, et cetera, there are anomalies in all of those in terms of what you'll read in the standard science journals that these things explain, that the UDH and the magma mental series explains. And we kind of thought about how we're going to do this introduction quite a bit. And it was the idea at the end of the day that let's line up the 35 anomalies, problems, issues, whatever you want to call that, that UDH provides solutions for. Whatever you want to call it, let's go one by one, a high level, because we got 12 more weeks of this that are actually going into the details of where Stan and Monty grab that data from the publication or whatever, what the whole thing is put together in detail over the next 12 weeks. This is, we're going to go one by one by all these very interesting anomalies in the data that for some, for most of us, we shelf and say, that's an anomaly. It doesn't help me in my prediction. And that's because the model's not, it can't take it, and, but the UDH can. So this is, this is us going for it. <laughs> okay, so we, we <laughs> oh, you want to say more? To that. Uh, so basically, you can break it down into a series of seven anomaly categories. Most of them, the big one is kerogen anomalies. Uh, then there's all these high energy mineral and rock anomalies. And by that, I mean, uh, minerals and rocks that don't normally associate with uh, the normal oil window, which is 80 to about 135 degrees C. A lot of these minerals occur way above that. And they're saying, they're saying there's something very anomalous as to how, what's going on with the hydrocarbons that are associated with them. And then there's the black shale problem, which even uh, conventional oil wisdoms now realizes not just a source rock, it is now the, a uh, reservoir rock. And so now all of a sudden that's become unconventional oil. But in fact, it's, that's a huge anomaly with respect to their whole model. Uh, salinization and brines are another major issue. Uh, they're not just accidental brine waters. or you know, Mostly they just look at them as water and they're not water, they're brines. And it turns out when you look at places like Mars, you'll find that there, there's a lot of brines on Mars too. So that we'll get back to that in a minute. Uh, and the, the thing that is persistently associated with oil in, uh, is uh, the notion of mud volcanism. And basically you can find not just a mud, nice little mud volcano hanging around, but you find most of these things are occurring down below the level of the mud volcanism. Uh, so you'll see things like really weird things like injectites uh, that are very spectacular geologic features that typically are overlooked by most petroleum geologists. Then there's oil problems, one of them being the experimental data that was generated by Lewin, where he couldn't generate oil until he got over 300 degrees C, which was two to three X, the conventional oil window. And that's a whole 
proof of uh, concept for the hydrothermal oil approach. Mm-hmm. And then there's the biosphere. There's not enough dead dinosaurs to go around to make all the oil that we actually see. And that's one of the reasons that Exxon approached us back in the early 2000s because they recognized the same mass balance. And they said, what's this thing called serpentine? So we, we went down that rabbit hole, which turned out to be a very good rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> okay, plot twist, Dan. We're going page by page, and we got about two, two and a half minutes per page. <laughs> this guy is really riding herd on me. But, uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll just page down through some of the carrageen anomalies. Uh, this is, that's what carrageen looks like from the North Sea. But more to the point, uh, primordial carrageen is, occurs all over the place. And by primordial carrageen, we mean something that is relatively unhydrogenated. It's mostly a polyaromatic hydrocarbon carriage or abbreviated PAH. And it's all over the uh, universe. It occurs in meteorites. Turns out big time on Mars now other microplanets, very persistent in mantle rocks, in serpentinites, talc, uh, lots of things that are unconventional to where oil should normally hang out. And thanks to the Norwegians, two of which are in the audience, um, they gave us a lot of rope to hang ourselves on and we went out and collected a lot of crazy rocks like talc, serpentinites especially, and showed that, yes, there is, in fact, carrageen as analytical TOC in these things. And that, and that is very anomalous to the conventional model. So there's something else going on here with respect to the origin of oil. Next. Okay, so this is, uh, has to do with some uh, Martian meteorites. And uh, for those that tuned in, I know Anastasia is out there somewhere. She, uh, we talked about Martian carrageen and the potential for uh, hydrogenation of that carrageen by Martian brines uh, in, the, in the context of Martian hydrothermal brines associated with the Gale Crater. And we have, we're reinterpreting Gale Crater as probably the largest mud volcano known in the solar system. It's 96 miles across and 18,000 feet high. I don't know of one that's bigger than that, although there's some pretty big ones in the Caspian and in the Marianas. But... Uh, Anyway, there's carrageen in it, and uh, the curiosity has been roving around up there, and it's got a full analytical uh, laboratory on board that is capable of analyzing this stuff with a laser-induced spectrometry instrument, and uh, so that they can uh, do whole rock analyses and all kinds of other things, but including um, basically what's carrageen. What is carrageen? And it's there and it's getting hydrogenated. In the research, just for FYI, if you're reading into what's happening on Mars, the scientists that are putting all this data out, they're calling uh, kind of a synonym, I guess, of... Uh, MMC, that's called macular molecular hydrocarbon. Right. Equals carrageen. Right. So those are interchangeable in this discussion. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, the other anomaly about carrageen is that uh, it occurs on this planet, of course, and it, you can chase it all the way back into the Archean. Here we're looking at the 3.4 to 3.5 GA Strelly Pool Formation. In, and uh, yeah, that's a huge anomaly because uh, 
in terms of conventional plant mass or other biospheric mass, we don't have enough of that until middle Ordovician time about 450 million years ago. But here's something that's 3.5 and it's generating. And the oldest and the other cool thing is they now know that there are serpentinites that are 3.8 billion that have been dated. So basically this goes back, if it's related to serpentinization, and we think it is, uh, all the way back to 3.8. So it's been around since early in Earth history, and it's been generating hydrogenated kerogen. So the, the oil-making process has been around early in Earth history on planets, on meteorites, in places where the, I think there's oil deposits on Mars, for example. Uh, just a matter of roving around enough to dig them up. <laughs> you have to need a big drill, uh, I guess. And then there's also young kerogen. The, these are... Uh, pictures of kerogen from really young Holocene age sediments that are fully matured kerogen, as you can see by the chromatogram there on the left, and uh, Anastasio like this, because uh, supposedly kerogen needs time to mature from a dead plant or a dead animal. Uh, this thing, uh, whatever made this, didn't have time at all to mature. And the bottom line is that kerogen is l largely made this way. So uh, it's not made, you don't have to have any time. It just comes out this way as part of the process. And the other fun one is uh, in, this is a hydrothermal quartz crystal, a Herkimer diamond from New York that has actually picked up some kerogen and has globulated it and is manufacturing it into oil. You're literally looking at the oil formation process. Uh, that is forming in the context of a quartz crystal. And the fluid inks on these crystals typically are at around 200 degrees C. So again, you're looking at that process in this crystal that's going on well above the oil window. So that's another anomaly that can't be explained by the conventional wisdoms. And then we also see kerogen uh, in the context of uh, elemental metal anomalies, metallic elemental anomalies. Here's a uh, picture of a calcocyte black smoker coming up and teeing out into a horizon just below the highly carbonaceous uh, Kupferschiefer shale, which is a very carigenous shale. Uh, and in fact, in places it's a um, shale oil play in other parts of Germany. This is obviously in the copper mines. Uh, and this one's actually at Rudna in Poland. But um, so, but again, it's suggesting a process coming up from a deeper horizon that's not only the source of the copper, but the corrigenous material, which is uh, the calcocyte, by the way, goes right out into that sort of exhalative horizon that's making the Kupfer schiefer. So again, another mineral-related process. And here you can see a nice picture of the Kupfer schiefer calcopyrites that are diffusing out into uh, the black shale as these leaf-like things. The uh, kerogen is the darker material in the matrix and then the lighter material is clay-rich, probably an illitic clay or potassium-rich clay. In fact, some of these are full-blown muscovites in terms of 1M muscovites, which are 200 degrees plus. So again, you're dealing with a temperature well above the oil window. This stuff, this is happening and diffusing out into the shale 
as the mud Shale, is yeah being all of this deposited. is in a soft sediment type uh, context yeah okay so if you age dated that shale then this shortly after. it has been age dated it's at about the illites out of that the high quality illites out of that are about 252 million which is exactly at the permo triassic boundary hmm all right and here's another place where uh Carrageen shouldn't exist. And these are from, uh, these are alkane extractions from carrageens that have been retrieved from mantle materials. Now, what we've done is we've, we've gotten borrowed the uh, whole rock data and other off plot information here and shoehorned them into the <laughs> layered earth model. And, uh, but this just shows the carrageen component of that. One of the cool things is that the deeper you go, the higher the C numbers seem to be. So when you're in the really deep ones, you see the C28, those are out of uh, lucitite diatremes in Wyoming. Hmm. And then our uh, definitely normal uh, alkalics are C21 to 24, then C22s maxing right. out. And then when you get into the more hydrogen-rich guys, C19s for the higher level peridotite. So, but those are all alkanes that are existing in the mantle. Alkane hydrocarbons are supposed to burn off by 130 degrees C. Here we're dealing with 1500 to 2000 degrees C. Pretty Way sick. down there in the mantle. Right. Hydrocarbon is very stable. It's one of the main points. Yeah. There's no deadline for it. Carrageen, we know for sure, is like really stable. That was told me in undergrad. Like you could put as much heat and whatever you want on carrageen and that thing will stand. Everything else will be gone. Carrageen standing. Yeah. But what's interesting about that carrageen is that it has uh, other high, it's just a, it's almost a hydrocarbon rock that's composed of all of these different hydrocarbon compounds which include the aliphatic alkane hydrocarbons so mm -hmm. for example in that martian meteorite that the that carrageen and its contained aliphatic hydrocarbons survived a crash right into the earth where you had temperatures probably up at 2000 degrees c at high pressures and they just went right through that so they're incredibly refractory little beasts. <laughs> All right, carbon isotope anomaly. What are we talking about here? I'm not good with isotopes. I'm going to throw that out there, Stan. Well, this is a typical, uh, this is from Fru Green and others 2004, and then I've added a few other things bolted on here. But uh, basically, we're looking at the uh, C12, C13 ratios, uh, carbon ratios, isotope ratios. And the, the big takeaway from here is that meteorite carrageen, peridotite xenoliths, oceanic gabbros, lots of other rocks that uh, this was retrieved from, from carbonaceous material in those rocks, form a uh, window from about minus 31 to about minus uh, 18 or so. Okay. Yeah, that window right there. And the, the big deal is that oil itself which you go down to the bottom of that diagram, forms in the same window. So all of these are permissively, uh, that oil is permissively wow. related to some kind of uh, source ultimately tied to peridotites and xenoliths, et cetera, et cetera. Cool. Okay, so this is just the uh, energy problem, the idea that uh, what we've been sort of skirting around here where 
these uh, carrageens that ultimately get hydrogenated into oil, we're now calling them hydrocarrageens as opposed to PAH uh, carrageens. And uh, basically you need water to do that. You need water in high energy environments. Uh, even by the time you get to the subcritical, supercritical boundary, you want to put your cursor on that up in the oh, upper part. Yeah. Yep. So we're dealing with a very high energy process. And when we get above that boundary, that's where things ionize and, and the water starts to react with the kerogen. And that's where you start getting the hydrogenation effects. But keep in mind that boundary is down at about 400 degrees C. Uh, in a saline brine situation and it goes all so you're dealing with mid to lower crest type uh, environments which extends the conventional oil window way down into the mid crest where all this stuff's happening and in the Lewin experiments the alkanes actually form first in the higher temperature windows so it has something to do with where serpentinite is turning into an upper crust rock is that more temperature driven the line between subcritical and well no you can get serpentinites coming all the way to the surface for okay. that matter but but the, the point is that uh the hydrothermal this is the hydrothermal brine product it's coming out of this that's that's part of the serpentine reaction and that's the thing that's leading to the quartzes the talcs but the subcritical supercritical boundary is a moving target throughout the crust it can be yeah and that's more temperature driven or pressure driven or we don't know. It's temperature driven. It's more temperature driven. Not pressure driven. It could be deeper or shallower depending on yeah. the temperature gradient of essentially. You could Yeah, the that. geotherm. So yeah, if you just turn you just simplify it and you turn the four hundred degrees C into depth, you're looking at around thirteen to fifteen kilometers there. Okay. Ten to fifteen kilometers. One step further. Entry problem, meaning that as the planet's losing energy naturally through serpentinization, it's making enough of, from the pressure, water, and temperature. It's making all the hydrocarbon we possibly need. Well, it's acting like a typical hydrothermal system, which is moving from a high energy uh, source to a, a ultimately a low energy trap, as you like to put it. And we're not taking this system and putting it back under thousands. We don't have to find energy to put it back into it, and that's a major problem with the maturation pro, uh, model for oil. Is you've got to put it under a basin, got a basin burial it to get it up into the oil window, and we have no such problem with that. Right. It's just a typical mineral deposit that has some oil in it. <laughs> okay and and here's another clue to that another which is another anomaly is that uh one thing that's not emphasized that these guys want you to pay attention to which is petford and mccaffrey uh is there's over 400 medium to large oil fields from around the world that are including serpentine reservoirs in cuba for, for example in santa maria basin and white tiger is a giant billion barrel plus oil field in Vietnam, hosted in Precambrian granite. Edison is multi-hundred million giant field northeast of Bakersfield. These aren't trivial. And these are hosted in crystalline rocks beneath the normal basin that people wind up looking at. And their message in this book was, well, you need to be looking down into the basement. And from where we come from, we're looking at this thing from a basement up point of view that is tracking the high energy uh, hydrothermal oil systems. Right, and through major structural tectonic plate 
timelines like right. antler and all these erogenies we have really good timelines on that's when things are breaking that's when serpentinization is is just ramping and raging its way up to the crust right that's those time well, you need you need a big global scale plumbing system because we're we're dealing these are huge hydrothermal systems that initiate in the lower crust right your lovely little cracks of the world story the process happens punctuated in geologic time kind of with those big tectonic well events. yeah and one of the things about a hydrothermal system versus a basic burial model is that hydrothermal systems are are virtually in geologically instantaneous right so that whole thing that's going down in that rock there is happening in maybe a hundred to a million thousand years and and that's been now validated by the rhenium osmium dating right which we'll get into but before that here's another anomaly uh, this is the diamondoid anomaly. In the, in the early 2000s, there was information published coming out of discoveries that had been made by Chevron, which actually are built on discoveries that the Czechs made in the early 30s when they found adamantane diamondoids uh, that uh, have found effectively diamonds in oil. How do you do that? Because everybody's and their dog thinks that a diamond is a high-pressure, high-temperature mineral. Now, in terms of how all of this breaks out after all the experimental data, et cetera, we think, and we'll develop this story a lot more later, that diamondoids form between about, uh, start forming at about 450 to about 350, and then they get incorporated uh, in every oil. And interestingly enough, when they're in the oils, but they're not in the relic carrageens that's left over. So that's, there seems to be Something about when the oil is expelled, the diamondoids seem to go with them. So that, that's a real interesting thing that we'll deal with later on. <laughs> okay, now the, one of the big things, and this is the, one of the things that got Troy's attention, is dolomite is a very common uh, reservoir cement mineral or an orthogenic mineral. And you can see how much of it there is here. This is the El Capitan in New Mexico. You have similar huge amounts of this uh, kicking horse rim in Canada, the uh, Dolomite Alps in Italy, on and on, where huge amounts of calcium, magnesium, carbonate are flooded into uh, typically shelf carbonate sections and completely replace them. Where did all of that magnesium come from? And that's one of the things that got us into uh, – Dolomites in general was uh, they're they're also form at about 100 degrees C plus or 75 degrees C plus, so it's not a uh, you need a warm wet, uh, wet condition for these things that is above your typical standard pressure temperature window on the surface. I never really zoomed in on this, and I mean this this these features in the. Capitan. Yeah, yeah, those are almost injectite type things that want to take off on you. They're amazing. I mean, there's a lot of, of mobilization going on. What do you think things. the difference between the tan rock and the gray rock is? Different compositions of dolomite, probably. Calcium magnesium ratios, I don't know. We'll get up there. We'll collect some rocks, shoot it with laser beams. There you go. And quartz does the same thing, but these are beauties. These are from Pakistan. They call them diamond quartz, ironically. 
And here, the one on the left, you can see a complete sequence that is roughly going up the C crystallization axis that goes from a platy kerogen on the right side, on the left side, and then it gets globulated and then it's oil by the time you get to the young growth tip. And you see the same thing here where you got a platy kerogen at the, where the thing started growing and then oil at the growth tip. That thing hits the C axis and makes the major left turn, huh? Yeah. Okay. But the point here is that, that typical fluid inks on those things are, like I say, in the 200 degrees C, and we've got a complete sequence here of oil being formed in a hydrothermal context. So there's no question that oil can happen under hydrothermal conditions. Now, a lot of guys will argue and then say, well, yeah, you made a teaspoon of oil. And I'll say, well, no, there's a lot more oil being made than that. <laughs> Uh, here's another one, which is magnetite in oil. Now, this is uh, those little black rings in there aren't oil; they're, they're magnetite. And and in between, now that, which is really wild, is the lighter colored materials. There are salt. So Hawkins going to really like this. I don't know if he's seen these things. These are from the Tunguska big iron mine. Yeah, it's famous for its. Uh, You've all seen what's coming from here, which is the serophonite clinochlor chlorides. Those are world famous with the lapidary crowd. But not so famous are these things, but they're, they're out there. And uh, these magnetite ooids effectively, and, and they're giving you a, a little clue about how ooids in general might be formed as not magnetite spheres, but calci spheres in a hot carbonate injectite vent or mud chamber somewhere and they are erupted. So all those things that people put sentimentological interpretations on need maybe one to be think those a little bit, not so fast. Yeah, I got a place in the Permian outcrops next to the Permian basin that just yeah, this huge stacked up they call TP structure. And then at the top, bang, teed off is a bunch of ooids and and it's all you know very interesting. Yeah, I've got a great picture of those that we now, can get in here for the Green River. So thinking about that during the time these things were actually being made in a high energy pipe, that's gas release and well, no, that's liquid, liquid fractionation. Okay, so how do you make the things? You yeah. start out with a nucleus, obviously, and then then you have a high density brine. So these things then are hitting critical saturation points where a given layer will precipitate out. And then, then you'll back off on the pressure or you'll change the compositions of the fluids. But a lot of that's pressure migrating up and down to uh, create these rings. And again, that's saying high energy stuff. Salt's coming in later. That's the last thing to come. Well, out no, there was salt coming in early. This thing right. is one salty sucker. So every ring is what a, a plume, a, an energy change. Yeah, that's a yeah. There's there's a depositional event around a nucleus, and you can see sometimes that nucleus is a piece of salt, like that little one. This guy. Yeah. And the one down below it, and then on the other hand, oh, it's yeah. magnetite dominated. Whoa! So these things are all mixed up. So this one has a similar ride, maybe to this one, and then yeah. this one, and this. wow, pretty wild. Okay, this one we're just throwing in here. Uh, this is back to the Kufer Schiefer again. But uh, one of the things, of course, now in the oil business is that they now recognize that their black shales are not just seals, but they are unconventional oil reservoirs as well. 
Right. Seal and source, right? They said seal yeah. and source. But now Self it's sourcing, they like to say. Right. Seal source and reservoir. Now, the reason we threw this one in is that the Kuferschiefer itself is a shale oil play, as I mentioned earlier. But just below it in the Weisligen, uh, Weisligen is the, uh, that is the host for some of the largest gas and minor oil uh, deposits in Europe, especially over in the Netherlands, crossing over into Germany. So there's a huge hydrocarbon play immediately underneath it that's associated with the Kuferschiefer timeline, which is better known for its copper deposits. But there is definitely oil and gas going on in that timeline, mm -hmm. big time. So here's uh, another thing about black shales is that they generally don't have permeability, but if you heat them up and you hydrolyze them and you turn them into hydrocarbons and you generate oil, you can see how that event itself will make permeability. But it's immediately around the hydrogenation of the carrageen itself. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't there, and it was actually probably formed while the black shale itself was being deposited in. So let's go to the next one. Here's another thing that's becoming increasingly famous in oil circles, which is carrageen porosity. And the thing that's interesting about that is the only place you see that porosity is in the carrageen itself. Uh, and we look at it from a UDH perspective as a devolatilization texture, sort of like vesicular uh, gas bubbles in a basaltic volcanic flow or in some, any kind of, of uh, devesiculation volcanic. So that is actually an exit, volatile exit texture. So it's not porosity that was pre-existing that the oil somehow found. It was made there and lost from the carrageen as the source. That's the better way to interpret it from a UDH perspective. And that, that resolves that anomaly. Now, the other thing that is increasingly be found, being found when people start looking at the chemistry of their muds is they're finding out that there's a lot of oddball minerals like talc, serpentine, and clinochlor uh, in a lot of these black shale basins. And talc typically is a 300 degrees C plus mineral. How did that get there? Serpentine similar, it's the same thing with clinochlor. And, and this is an example from Troy's favorite place, the Permian Basin, where the, uh, there's a lot of uh, this, that material in the upper part of the uh, Ochoan. Right, Castile, this Castile big hydrate salt thing that sits on top yeah, of Yeah, which hole. is also saying where did the salts come from? Oh, because man, a, lot of, a lot of that stuff is actually in the salt itself also. I had a dream. The talc. I had a dream about this. I was throwing it out there. I actually had a dream about this when you told me about this and I was trying to figure out how is this salt and hydrate making itself through the Permian time? It's sitting there density stratified floating essentially on this big run volcanic sit. I just imagined the whole thing came up with this awesome model. <laughs> it was great. It's bad influences around here. <laughs> now here's another one example from the Louisiana Luan salt uh, diapirs. Uh, these guys in 1996, Lock and Dew, found serpentine talcified serpentine xenoliths 
in the salt diapirs that are going, where did those come from? <laughs> and they, they probably scraped up some of the, uh, what we think is that these are crystallized brine products of serpentinization. So, why so they're not evaporative. Right. That's, that's the big message here. You have to rethink your salt geology as a, from a non-evaporative point of view. Now, when these things do hit the surface, they oversaturate in terms of their saline content and then precipitate out, maybe even evaporate. But the original problem came from the deep. And there's so much of it, you have a real mass balance problem. You have to evaporate multiple oceans. But if you go get it from a uh, serpentine, it turns out serpentines contain as much chlorine as any rock in the world in the hydroxyl site. So they're a big source of chlorine. Right. And so the timing of these diapirs and specifically then the timing of these world-class reservoirs that pinch up against them, is that a migration story that's pinching it up to the side, or is that actually, we well, no, that, that would be, a, you know, that's, he's got sand in there, but if you made that a black shale, uh, what you're doing is that this is an ongoing process. So the brine ultimately penetrates its, uh, its roof, which was a, it could have been a black shale at one point that was highly carbonaceous. It was making oil. So, all of this is roughly occurring relatively at the same time, but the diapirism can occur quite later. For example, in uh, Europe, the Zechstein salts uh, actually have diapired up into the Cretaceous sedimentary section. So they're, although their origin is much older. So if you were to draw this timeline where you have these world-class, let's call them shale reservoirs, pinched up against the salt, would the diapir be mostly that stuff? And that the later salt diapir that, no, it's just remobilized from the pre-existing Luan salt, but but it's coming up as a diapir in the Cretaceous. Okay. I was thinking that. In fact, some of those things are even still moving. Right. Well, yeah, exactly right. So it's all still moving. That's where our Tabasco salt comes from. Okay, so here's the brine problem, and we're just putting this up here. Um, okay, that's the Lewin experiment there, and you can see a little oil layer floating on the water that he put in there, which is turned into a brine. That's the brownish stuff underneath it. And he did a little thing where he put salt in the water, and the more salt that he put, the more oil he made. So if you compare the, uh, where's the oil? Okay, expelled product, yeah. So you can see 3.8 versus about 2.5, 2.7. So he made another percent oil by, by jacking the uh, Which one were you salinity up. Uh, Might have followed the wrong one. Well, expelled oil. Yeah, expelled oil, that's the one. 2.66, da 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 and then over, bingo, 3.8. 3.8, yep. Got it. And I talked to Lewin at a conference in uh, Switzerland, and um, he said, well, one thing I didn't put in this paper, although I had the data, was uh, about for every percent NACL equivalent up to about 15 weight percent, he got about another percent expelled oil. So and he I went said, to... why didn't you put that in the paper? That's really electric. <laughs> And, and he said, well, I, didn't, I couldn't figure out why I was doing that. <laughs> so I just, so, just put the first step in. 
So the we're gonna have Lewin said he'd be uh, willing to come down and talk. Yeah, to us well, what we stuff. need to do is have a little uh, remembrance session. That would be awesome. But basically, what you're saying is this five percent salt when the NACL got involved in the hydroparalysis when he put this in a lab under a bunch of temperature, a bunch of uh, pressure. Yeah, it participated in the reaction in the oil generation. He's making more light yeah. oil, mobile oil, and then he took it to ten and it did even more. And then he took it to fifteen and did even more. Yeah. Big time. And this is a brine. So here's some brine water that has lithium. And, that, and that's just uh, to make the point that there's a lot of possible, a lot of people just want to throw this water out. And they should rethink that because there are other elements in there like lithium. The other thing is if you re-inject it back into your reservoir because of that salt issue, you might be able to generate more oil at the oh, PTs no. back in the oil reservoir. So there's a lot of... Especially you put heat back in the system. Opportunity too. that's going on with these brines there. And, and, and yeah, and then you get rid of them as a waste product and then actually you really reuse them to make, make more oil. That's an intriguing possibility to me. Yeah. The other uh, uh, the thing that I keep thinking of is we got to make our frac fluid salty. Yeah. Carry this stuff in on something that's a catalyst for this process. Well, just take the brines and put them in back in there with your frac right. fluids and turn. Yeah, right. Because the the what what the oil business doesn't realize is that those brines are there as a part of the causal process that that led to the oil in the first place. It's not being made from dead dinosaurs. It's being made from reaction of kerogen with hot brines. Right. Like it appears to be on Mars. So here we were looking at it on mass with no biosphere around, and it's looking like it wants to make oil on Mars. Through a similar thing, a Lewis acid, brine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it, Mars is a very briny planet. It's a chlorine planet. We get into that later in the semester yeah. of the webinar. Yeah, we were series. anticipating that a couple of days ago. Okay. Huge mass, masses of brines and salines around the planet. Again, the mass balance problem here, where are all those coming from? And again, almost all of those, you can find a serpentine around somewhere. Right. In the basement. Yep. Oh, that didn't come over. That's on me. You, you called out that this one had talc and serpentinite or, or whatever it had. Yeah. You, you went a lot of those basins have indicators in them of those serpentine minerals. Like we were talking about in the... Uh, Permian Basin. I'm going to put that page. I'm going to have two pages. So when everybody gets this copy of the presentation, this this point will have two pages. The backup. Yeah, you need the one that has the actual serpentine indicator minerals in there, or or the indications that these things these things were made as high temperature brines. Right. They're not evaporative. Right. The high temperature mineralogy in there. Yeah. Okay. Okay, and this just makes the point again. Here we have a high temperature magnetite mineral floating around in a salt-bearing Brescia pipe. This is a major iron mine in uh, the Tunguska Basin. And here's another example where you've got talc in a uh, diapir in Denmark and northern Germany. Bearing stylolite zone of talc. Yeah, how, how did that get into all that salt? And then there's another cool one where they have Herkimer quartzes out of these things that are at about 280 degrees C. And they even say in there that, hey, that means that these things were made at high temperature. 
So another thing that happens in these is that you get uh, rapid facies changes uh, in the in the laminated muds that indicate, uh, in many cases, especially if it involves silica, they're trying to say, let's just assume that that thing over from the North Sea is a silica thing. All of a sudden, you have opal CT next to uh, opal uh, crystalline quartz, et cetera, that indicate changes of uh, 50 to 60 degrees centigrade over millimeters. Right. And how do you do that? Uh, well, a lot of people get into the elevator tectonic model for a given lake where they have to get go from deep to shallow. And that's really a famous interpretation of the Green River Lakes, for example, this and that's Green River right there. Right. And this so is the dull. black is supposedly forming at depth. And the whiter stuff, a lot of times it's salt, and that could be a dolomite there. But the point is that whenever they see the salt electrona show up in this stuff, which is right next to it, they go, oh, well, that now it was a playa. Well, wait a minute, this guy was, oh, it had to be deep. So they go, they have a fluctuating profundal model for the Green River Lakes. Uh, my volcanism model just takes care of that, just sweeps it off the table immediately because uh, what you've got is just different chemical fractionates that formed in a, on a density-driven uh, basis in a mud chamber that just erupted sequentially. Uh, so it's just compositional differences. Okay, so that's another thing we'll get into. And then uh, this, this stuff has come along and started to get out into the literature for oil-related stuff about 2005 for the uh, oil stands up in uh, where they showed that the oil-related bitumens up there heavy oil-related bitumens were about 111, as in the paleontological age for those sediments is identical. And then the black carbonaceous shale lithocaps all fell on the same isocrop for 111. Now, this is doing the same thing with rhenium-osmium data sitting around about a 44-million-year-old isochron. What is it? That, was that 43 or 45, something like that? Oh, 49. So literally all these things form at different rhenium-osmium ratios uh, along the isochron that are basically mapping the uh, fractionation process associated with the, with the oil shales. Wow. The timing on that is just insane. So the oil itself is down there at the lower end of the thing. And that came from uh, a hydrogenated kerogen at the upper end of the thing. And it was, so when the oil actually separated, you, you, could, it, you could see that dashed line there. To, well, that's the transfer from uh, and the fractionation event that occurs going from a hydrogenated kerogen to the oil. And they all basically lay on the same 45 million year isochron. So an instantaneous process. Right. And it, uh, we now have case histories from the Monterey Shale. You name it. Uh, I've tabulated Athabasca about 50 Sands. of them. Athabasca was the first case history. Right. And if I, I just crossed paths with a guy. He made an observation on a bitumen maturity story with Kerogen from an article. And he goes, I've read this article. And not one thing was mentioned about Athabasca Sands. Why didn't you mention anything about that? rock and so why didn't we no no no. why didn't the article the article was making this big uh, burial depth with carriage in oh yeah yeah because the, the burial depth model there uh says it happened at about 60 
and and they had and then one of the problems there is that out where they're at they don't have any uh burial that they can do so they what they do is they oh wait a minute we got a thrust belt over here about 200 kilometers away over there called the canadian rockies <laughs> so we'll we'll take it over underneath we'll have some stuff that was over there we'll make it into these heavy oil sludges and then we'll migrate them up dip for 200 kilometers over hill and dale and wind them up at 60 million and then the rhenium osmium came along and blew that whole argument out of the water so wait a minute this happened when the very formation was being laid down as a sand supposed wow. sand at 111. wow same thing going on here in the green river at 45 49. Wow. so again for me uh green river is is a complex of mud volcanoes and here we are over in azerbaijan uh at a so-called methane cold seep that is like the old faithful of the uh, Caspian uh, that erupts on schedule every 10 years. And you can see all those little sticks sticking out of it. That's an oil field. It's pulling mud out of the, and then a bullet train runs speeding along right next to it, early <laughs> version of one. But Hawkins been down to this one. He can tell us all about it. <laughs> And another thing I, these uh, mud volcanoes do is introduce turbidity to your seismics. And so here's one up in the northern Norway that's, uh, look at all that turbidity that's introduced by the mud. It totally scrambles up your whole reflecting packages, makes it highly annoying for the standard uh, seismologist trying to interpret these things. But really what you should look at them is... Yeah, there's one on the this one I've, side I've seen in the Permian Bay. I've seen this structure. I've I totally yeah, know exactly Yeah, except that's over on the Lopa High in Norway, but uh, northern the Norway. disruption in the turbidity all the way through the Permian and ties into the salts and anhydrites of the Permian Basin. That that's there in the day. I've seen it. I've seen it in the yeah. Permian, and and also these uh, these things that are coming off of this. So they seem like that's getting punched through. Another one kind of getting anyway, when you start looking at this stuff. Well, from, they're all coming up fracture systems and they're all going down into the basement. So this process is not just restricted to the basin. It's basement origin originated. And the oil originates there as well. So now this goes back into the classical uh, experimental oil experiments by Lewin himself, where he created oil at, at 300 to 360 degrees Celsius. And the important point there is that when he was heating it up, he went through several steps below that, you know, 100, 150, every 50 degree increments, nothing happened until he got to 300. And then the real action happened between about 340 and 360. And that's when the alkanes come out and you create that little oil column sitting uh, on the uh, product side of that after sign. Which is a temperature thing that correlates pretty good to that subcritical, supercritical boundary. That's correct. Once you just get below 375 is just below the supercritical boundary. So once that thing comes through uh, into, into the ionic window where you can, that's what's where you're promoting all these reactions. Uh, then you start reacting with carrageenan. It all happens quickly, right as you come out of the window, and then you make your high-temperature stuff, which is going to be the alkanes, which is interesting. 
Here's another fun one from an oil field in northern Norway uh, that just gets at the idea that this didn't migrate in there. It formed in place like we were doing with that carriage and porosity story. But here what we have is porosity in a dolomite. Those are dolomite class. And then there's a more calcitic dolomite matrix. Well, all the oil that's there is that you see in the fluorescence data is related to those older class that are entrained in a what these are basically different phases of a of a uh, injectite reservoir which is the host rock uh, so you can't you did migrate that stuff in there it formed there and then before the volcano shut down which is all of this is probably going down within maybe a million years tops hmm. So there was no base and burial going on. This thing happened in place. <clears throat> and you got turned on to this migration pathway problem or anomaly in a conversation a long time ago. And you talked about how, I don't remember who it was, but you said, you know, they, we never could find the oil slick. We, we know the Yeah, source. that was we a conversation the- I had with a mobile, ex-mobile geologist. And they had had a big research on, you know, the classical petroleum system model, source, migration, trap. Right. And they said, yeah, we could take care of the source. That's a black shale. Yeah, we could take care of the traps pretty well because we can see them. That's what we're Sands pulling the oil out of. Yeah. But, but we, our biggest problem we had was the migration part of it. Uh, we never could find something like an oil slick that connected the dots between what we thought was the source, a matured source, and the trap. Uh, now, from where we come from, we said, well, yeah, that's because it didn't make the oil until it, in, until it got there, number one. And number two, there is a trail, but it's not a oil slick. It's, right. it's a hydrothermal brine alteration anomaly that you can track all the way down into the lower crust. Using elemental serpent- data. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, you can even see it in the seismic data because it produces, uh, we didn't put them up here, but we have seismic data for the whole crust from Canada, from the Athabasca that show these big turbidity plumes coming up from layered stuff at the base of the crust, which is obviously a candidate for serpentinite. And it go, links right up into these reservoirs that are yep. producing out of them. Yep, and in fact, we even have serpentinites that have come up as dikes that they found in the core just below the Paleozoic section. Yeah, I've seen that picture. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, We've been talcifying. This one's cool because... Well, well this makes you rethink uh, the st- one of the standard analytical tools that people use to figure out whether they're on the trail of an oil anomaly or not, and that's Rockyval data. And what you do with Rockyval is you take a rock that has some carrageen in it, you don't have to necessarily extract the carriage and it just burns the carriage and up it's in rock X, although you measure how much you've got. And at, in the S1 column over there, that you get a, basically you're looking at devolatilization steps. So S1 typically occurs at about uh, 250 uh, plus or minus 50. And, and then S2 occurs at 450 plus or minus 50. S3 uh, is the CO2 release, which occurs at 550 to 600 typically. S2 is mainly gas. S1 is petroleum. 
And the ironic thing in the, in the business is that S2 is typically thought to be the, the possible produced stuff uh, that you can turn into oil. Well, from a UDH perspective, which is coming from the other direction, S2 is the residual stuff that's as left over after the S1 hydrogenated part of the kerogen leaves it and, and produces that kerogen vesicular texture. Which is why this has an ascending... Correct. So we see an increasing... And I've seen this, if you look at a drill hole anywhere where there's good kerogen Rocky Vol data, uh, you'll typically see patterns like this. In fact, you might see them occur over several cycles, but basically you'll see an increase in S1 and S2, but then there'll be a certain horizon where all of a sudden the S1 goes, whoops, see you later. <laughs> and, but S2 keeps going on. So we've decided it, what we, the way we interpret this is the S1 is the refractory component, which it was telling us all around long because it hangs, it doesn't, oil off as a gas until 450. That's your oil burning off there into the orange zone. That's the expulsion. That's the expulsion, yeah. So that particular horizon in this particular play uh -huh. is a potential shale oil target. Now, they didn't do that. They went after the reservoir underneath it, but there's a whole play up there that, that might have oil in that particular timeline. Pretty cool. So that, and so that's a whole other way thing that is a hugely anomalous to the uh, conventional oil story, uh, and we'll be talking more about that in the course of the meeting. Now, uh, this is the uh, he put call it the biosphere X, but what this is is a hydrogen map, and the main point that Sherwood Lawler and others is making here in the 2014 Nature paper is that in a lot of the deep mines where they were collecting this data uh, and it's uh, looking for something to play with. And if it finds some kerogen somewhere, it's going to play games with hydrogenating it. This could lead to oil generation in certain places. Uh, one of the things that's really cool about those, that dike that Monty was pointing out earlier that's uh, in the Colorado front range and in uh, Hans rubbed my nose into this one since he's there. I'll give him some credit. I'll take the credit if he wasn't there. Uh, so uh, he saw all this white bleach stuff. He says, Stan, what do you think that is? And I was trying to go, well, maybe it's clay. Maybe it's some, some bleaching thing. And he says, what about hydrogen? And all of a sudden, I just hit my head. I said, yeah, of course, that's what it is. H hydrogen is a very reactant reactive uh, gas and, and so when it sees something like a sand or something some matrix component of a rock that it's traveling with it just bleaches the hell it bleaches straight white wow now back to the mass balance problem we you come to the conclusion with the previous model that we've grown to, to learn that oil comes from a biogenic biosphere process so if hydrogen is pouring out of the crust in all these areas well serpentinization which is sitting underneath all of this is a hydrogen generator and it's sitting under all the ocean basins that reaction makes hydrogen now if you're reacting it from a, a, a peridotite to a lizardite that generates a lot of hydrogen if you if you're 
reacting it from a lizardite to a higher temperature, high pressure serpentinite, that also liberates hydrogen. So you can have lots of hydrogen generation associated with that process. And ultimately, the point is we have so much oil and gas on this planet. It dwarfs that, yeah. It's and scale correct. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, there, and the other interesting thing is that they're saying all those green things up there, they're saying they're Precambrian. Those aren't oil fields. Right. And the point is that those basements everywhere they looked had a lot of hydrogen floating around. Right. Which can leak up into overlying sedimentary basins and play games, but that's got a lot of oil plays in that. Got a lot of oil play down well, there. Well, you know, that's just, that you're getting a little cracks. ahead of yourself. Here, this one follows uh, the cracks of the world pretty awesomely. That yeah, thing, yeah, you guys. I kind of got lost on that one, but anyway, <laughs> we get the point across. Uh, oxidation state. This is something you and Monty put together in the in the MagmaChem database, right? Yeah, we like the uh, the blue areas for oil. So blue uh, is reduced crust. Yeah, that's a hydrogen-rich crust. And the, and red, the red is an oxidized crust. Got it. And oxygen is the enemy of oil formation. If you hit an oxidized zone, it's game over. So that's San Juan, that's And what it'll do ultimately in, on a geologic scale is, is oxidize any reduced HC to uh, carbon dioxide, CO2. So you don't want to be in that. Uh, we'd modify that a little bit, but but that's one reason why there isn't any a lot of oil in Arizona, for example, is that the magmas that came up through Arizona crests ox, oxidized and made copper deposits. The whole uh, you you go into this, which everybody has access to, the detailed cracks of the world two thousand three publication. You go into a concept of why the oxidation state of the crust would have a funky pattern, but more so why every intrusion through geologic time in a given area generally, maybe even more than generally, stays the same oxidation through geologic time. So there's something going on with oxidation. Well, that's state. a mass thing. So the more mass you equilibrate with a certain oxidation state, the harder it is to reverse it. And temp typically these things want to get more and more oxidized with time. Because mm -hmm. once you do oxidize it, it's hard to reverse it back into make, make it so, reduced again. Although you can, if you have enough hydrogen flux, you can reverse that. And apologies for not having a good description of this map. Uh, sorry, Monty, you want to say something? Yeah, if you put a big arc, like a Jurassic arc in, you can oxidize it. But the, that oxidation state pattern is, is, is following old terrains that have been cre accreted to together into the continent. So, again, north central Nevada, that's an oceanic uh, terrain that's stuck in there. So it has a low oxidation state. And, you know, the gold and the oil and the diamond. Follows that reduced blue area. Follows reduced. So this yeah. is basically uh, contouring the commodities. And, and, they, and they follow the big, big structures, as you can see there. That's a basement structure map I, I constructed from all sources, and just to see if, if we could outline uh, these, uh, these oxidation state uh, terrains. So it's beautifully. Monty, can you explain just real quick, because we don't have a description on this, and I apologize for not having a description or a north arrow. I was top better than that. 
but we we got it in here. This is so. Explain the fe- all the all the features real quick on this map, Lonnie. Uh, well, we've got <laughs> we have the fracture zones out in the ocean, discussion. and the fracture zones, the oceanic fracture zones, basically define different uh, buoyancies of crust because there's different ages of crust. So when you subduct those, you tear the subducting slab. So those lines, those northeast trending dash lines are tears in, in the ocean crust as it's been subducted. And uh, so that, that, those, that forms major tectonic uh, ge- uh, geologic provinces. The panel right. of crust above those panels are their own, their own uh, geologic province. This is, the ba- the, is this the backside of the Farallon plate right here? That's the ultimate paleo subduction zone. It, yeah. it is a topographic feature out there, but yeah, there's a lot. It's not there anymore because it's because you now have the transform. Things turned into a transform margin. All right, and then we got go, uh, oil and, and gas uh, in in outlined here in the polygons right. and the yep. oxidation. Okay, sorry for that uh, non-description and a little bit drag on. Okay, here is the last of them today. And that we are going to dive into in great deep and gory detail, as Stan says, every Thursday, the same way as you get feedback, we can switch it up and change things and make it better. But this is how it starts. This is the last one. Then we're going to get into the whole UDH model, explaining this integrated model that takes mantle to crust, ultimately to, to everything we see on the surface. So here's the last one going into the so, end. So if you bother to read the fine print up here, which I'll just sort of summarize for you. Uh, but you can read it at your leisure later on. Uh, basically, the the chemical problem with converting kerogen into oil is you start out with something that is the chemistry of kerogen, even a hydrogen, relatively hydrogenated kerogen is HC. More typically, it's H point five C. And and you got to take that up. Bulk oil is H two C. Ironically, yeah. hydrogen so. deficiency in this process. Hey, Monty, can we mute your mic? Well, the bottom line is you have to find uh, hydrogen to get from HC to H2C. Now, you can do that by cannibalizing the HC to H2C, but you run out of uh, HC in a hurry right. doing that. So. The more convenient way to do it is to use H2O and get the hydrogen f- from a water donor. Wait a minute. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, and that's what Lewin was doing. So, uh, two moles of HC are required to make one mole of H2C. Uh, in the presence of water, you have the H there. In fact, if you add that to it, you even have hydrogen left over. So there's plenty of, that's where you go for your hydrogen. And it's a hydrogen unlimited process, whereas the other way, just by simply heating it and cannibalizing it to make H2C, that you, you limit yourself in a hurry right. on a mass balance base. Where, where if you're using hot water, no problem. You've got endless hydrogen. Which this next page is a, one of the final things we had in our diamondoid production that we spent a lot of time on that we'll get to it around week three or four or something like that. But this is basically you taking a Lewis acid brine from the oceans. Well, I'm using a uh, 
hydrogenation process here that involves some of the minerals. In this case, what we're using is muscovite. So we have a muscovite illite oil factory up there. And the idea is, is you're crystallizing illite, you're reacting it with, or mostly you're, it's muscovite because you're above the 200 degrees C window. So you're taking an H2O plus an 3HC brine plus bromine. Uh, and that's really important because that chloride makes a, or uh, halogenide makes a uh, Lewis bromic acid. And that creates what we're not talking about here is the diamondoid story, which we show down there at the lower left. And the diamondoids are real important. And we'll get into this in detail in the course where the diamondoids act as molecular platforms on which to pol polymerize alkane uh, chains. And, and then after they get really hydrogenated, they break off into liquid oil. And all of that process is happening during the crystallization solidification of the muscovite in this case. Right. Building muscovite clays, phyllosilicates, in a brine solution, and it's in that right. process. Right, you need that brine there. I mean, that's a necessary part of the process. And just muscovite illite promotes oil generation better than the other types of phyllosilicates. This is the best right because they they provide their own platforms as phyllosilicate planner faces on which you can have all the appropriate electrostatics that you need That's to right. accompany the polymerization effects. That's right. That's right. Okay. Now you're cleaving off at the end of this process. You're making bulk oil. You're cleaving off the diamondoids. It's going with yeah, the oil. Exactly. And we're left with the rock that was left over. The brine, all that stuff moves on, moves out. Well, move on, no, so moves out. some of it can, but some of it stays behind. Right. And you have the oil plus brine relic. And, and there's your, another example of vesiculated kerogen. And note that the porosity in that rock is right where the kerogen is. You don't see a lot of porosity anywhere else. Right. That expulsion. Yeah, and in again. some reservoirs, what happens is that in that area where it's actually gone to oil, is it the uh, entire kerogen has been reacted into oil, and so you'll have a a cast left behind that was kerogen, is now completely filled by oil, and this oil reservoir up in Norway is has a lot of that going on. Wow! And that happens in the context of an in, reacted injectite. Right. So we go through this incredible list that Stan and MagnaChem has put together over many years of studying this planet and seeing these anomalies and the data reoccurring. We put them all together to give an idea of how we're going to get through this semester or this webinar series of how really the UDH model that is finally being taught for the first time publicly through MagnaChem Research Institute it provides a potential solution to all this stuff. It's not an anomaly that you shelf anymore. Bring them back in, apply a model that can accept those. And in your experience, you've seen time and time again, the model not only uses them, but it's actually key information to make the right prediction. It's specific and it's predictive. And if you take all those anomalies we just went through, uh, if you're intellectually honest, you're going to have a hard time believing 
in the original conventional oil model that's out there that you learned in the textbooks. You're going to have to start thinking about another way to look at things. And as we went along, we not only we were looking for that alternative explanation, so we wind up building it as we solved each anomaly in detail. So it opens up the scale, and that's the biggest thing about where we're going with this whole presentation. Not only can we use all of these you know, wild things that we see in geologic rock record to try to help us find uh, something of economic value, we can use it now, but you gotta open up your scale. You can't just be basin focused and you certainly can't just be postage stamp where your acreage is focused. For you to really understand that the mantle and the crust is fully integrated from rock to rock process, the full process, you got to... Well, that the little inset there, go over to your right, yeah. No, go stop right, right in there. You'd look at that thing, that whole thing needs to be regarded as a petroleum system. Because if you do the classic model, the source is down here in these peridotite layers. And then they get mobilized through various tectonics. And then once they cross the supercritical boundary, which we've got in that little dashed line up there, that's where you get the reactions to turn it into oil and then bingo. You get typical basin traps, but you gotta be looking out in those crystalline rocks because they can have oil in them too, depending on what the local geology is. Well, at the end of the day, we're trying to find in this little reservoir in the basin, where is the biggest bang for my time and attention or my buck? You got to know where that system's coming from in order to have the, the highest possible resource you could find. The well, biggest and sim best. simple answer that the Russians have known for years, decades. It's known as the Korzynski rule. And basically they say that in their observations of oil reservoirs, they tend to be stacked. And the deeper you go, the more alkane it gets and the bigger it gets. So we have, we've only been exploring the tops of these systems. Wow. The deep play is out there just about everywhere. <laughs> That's why LA Basin is going to be pumping oil until we get sick of it. Because it's, it's, of it's below the basin down in the Orcopia Schist. It's hosted in that mainly. What the hell? And where did that come from? You can't get that from the Monterey source rock. It's sitting way the hell, thousands of feet above that. Right. And in itself is hosting oil. So how do they do that? So another epiphany for me anyway was, okay, what is the UDH webinar series amongst all these things that you've done in MagmaCam and how everybody understands it that's really intimately close to MagmaCam? What is different about this class or this webinar series? And Stan, you said it, it was... You're, you've integrated the serpentosphere into this model you've been working with. Well, serpentosphere term. is your soft rock geology. Well, it, and related so processes and, and mineral deposits like porphyry coppers, like we have around here in Tucson, is the hard rock side of it. Right. So the UDH process is the integrate is truly the integrated process between mantle and crust. Well, yeah, because it's making these high-density brines, which are the source of all this mud volcanism. Hey, so that's all. So that's soft rock. Right. Right. Monty? Yeah, one, one thing to say is that you also get metal deposits from serpentinization. It's not just yeah. oil. And I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking you've got hard rock, which is peridotites, which is a precursor to serpentinites. 
serpentinite is kind of halfway between a soft rock and a hard rock. It's, 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 it's a step between the two because it's not a peridotite and it's not really a sedimentary rock. It's, you know, it's a, mm. a hydrothermalite. You know, it's mm. rock type. Well, yeah, this kind of gets at, at what Maudie's saying right here. Right. But there's major, so, major metal deposits related to serpentinites. In fact, a lot of like Mississippi Valley types. Right. The, the Central a uh, African copper oxide deposits. I mean, th those are major things. And maybe Homestake. Homestake yeah. might be serpentinized <clears throat> magnesium-rich uh, peridotites. Okay, let's talk about this process of dehydrating the peridotite serpentisphere to brine expulsion and making rock in the crust. I mean, this is a little bit higher resolution of this transition that's happening between the subcritical supercritical boundary. It's happening in between the mantle layer and the layered earth. Yeah, one of made. the major processes that um, you have to think about here is what does a UDH system. We've, all, we've been focusing on what it looks like once it gets up into the overlying so-called sedimentary basins. But one of the things that uh, we marched around in Norway on with Hans, if he's still out there, uh, and we rubbed our noses in what was potentially going on with the UDH system in the middle and lower crust. And one thing we stumbled into, in fact, Hans grew up in a world-class talc deposit called Altamark. And uh, basically that's a product of steatization of serpentinite, which is literally going on right within the deposit. And when that happens, you, that dehydration reaction creates a hell of a lot of brine water, which can make dolomites and it can make... Uh, these things that we now are calling UDH complexes, and they've always been sort of funny metamorphic things because they're just floating around in the basins and they're just sort of, they cross cut it and they don't, nobody's really ever related them to what's going on with the metamorphic basement as their own event. So this, when in fact they're the UDH story coming up through the crust. Okay. And we plotted UDH complexes in Norway and they have sort of an amoeboid uh, spatial distribution that looks very similar to the oil fields and the overlying uh, offshore uh, fields that are up in the North Sea and Norwegian wow. seas. That's an interesting structural correlation. Well, it's a geographic correlation. Okay. Uh, okay. So... We, uh, we need to end it in order to have discussion for everybody that's still here. We're going to open it up to discussion and just as long as you want to stay, uh, we have a meeting at one. So I guess we'll go at least till 1230 ish on a discussion. So that's the end. Yeah, there it is. I'm going to get rid of this real quick. That's the end of the official week one. Hans has uh, raised his hand and yeah, uh, I knew he would want to talk. Let's go into Q and a. Um, oh, thanks comes. for the presentation. You were talking about carriage in part of shale rocks. Do you know the effect of the absorption in the production from shale? This is Jurgis from U of North Dakota. Thanks for your answer. Yeah, let's let him talk a little. I want to. I need to get some clarification on the question. Okay. So ah. is he out there? Hey. Oh, you're. Hello. <laughs> Hello, sir. 
Thank you so much for your presentation. It was so amazing. I think that it's just a couple of minutes for you. Thanks. Yeah, my question is related to uh, my research uh, is related to corrosion and uh, kind of porosities in shell and you explain the effect of the corrosion. But it's not, uh, we try to find more about that sorption, the effect of the absorption in the corrosion, how the gas, the methane, 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 uh, is stick in the corrosion and how the effect of this in the production uh, for for our research, okay. our formations, you know? Yeah, Bakken has that problem. Uh, we are working in Bakken. Yeah, thanks for Bakken. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, that's, that's sort of the classical uh, using the carrageen as a sorber, mm -hmm. uh, using the porosity to stick stuff in. What we're saying is that the carrageen porosity is an exit texture. Mm -hmm. It's losing its volatile, so it's the opposite it's not about sorption, it's about desorption. So well. what about when we pressure, we depressurize and we bring things on production, what is the carriage doing uh, to the hydrocarbons around it? Is it allowing it to release or is it holding on to Well, that? no, okay, so let me, let me go into that a little bit more. So if you, if you have a lot of rock evolved data, uh, what you'll find if you do um, carriage S1 and S2 maps and S1, S2 ratios, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you'll find that the areas of high S1 are going to be where your oil is because mm. that's the free oil. And what's interesting about what the other argument was doing was that they were looking for high S2 because they wanted to say that was potentially productive. What we're, from our point of view, we're looking at where the S1 is, which has been produced, where it's been pulled out of the carriage. And now if it migrates somewhere, if it finds a fracture or something to migrate on, hmm. then it might leave. But a lot of it is actually in situ. So when someone says absorption. It's, it formed right there. It didn't migrate. So the idea that there's a, it migrated in there may be a whole, you may need to rethink that. Interesting. It formed right there. And then it may or may not have migrated from a UDH perspective. Sir, thank, thank you so you much for your that. question, man. I'll, Does I'll that make sense to you? Uh, he went back. Yeah. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. Thank yeah, you so much. Yeah, he's going to say, I don't believe in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it, it's great. Thank you so much. Cool. Yeah, I need you. to think about it. All bit. right, let's go. Hand raise number one. Here's Hans. Oh, Hans, it's, he can't shut him up. Uh-oh. All right, is Hans in? He's got to turn on. Oh, well, I don't know who this is. Can you hear me? Is this? Yeah, we can. Is this Hans? Yes, this is me. Hi. Hi, Hans. <laughs> I was not sure whether you could hear me or not, but uh, I've been following the whole thing, and uh, it was great uh, to be back, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, to... it is. It's great to talk to you again. Yeah, well, of yeah, course, yeah. the last time we talked was over in Scotland, so... Yeah, that's right. No, I don't really have a question. I just want to congratulate you with your, with your presentation. It was great. And uh, wow, I will uh, probably uh, think of some. Oh, <laughs> I know you will. You, and, you're, and you're free to communicate it at your leisure. I will think of some almost intelligent things to ask you, but uh, not at present. I just wanted to congratulate you with uh, your presentation. Wow, okay, thank, thank you. you.
thought it was that one. Okay, so Don's, what is Don's uh, comment here, Stan? Uh, they're comparing it with the Shell Invictus thing in Africa. And he was saying that some of the seismic sections that we put up there remind him of that. Mm. But my question back to him is, what is, what did Shell ever do about all of the opacity that was in the seismics? Did they try to process it out or did they say, oh, maybe there's fluids in that opacity? We, uh, uh, tell Molly we have some cool uh, strike slip faults to show her uh, that we came up on from Mars. I'm going to make that an animation and put it out on. Uh, yeah, we need to put that out there as oh, a follow-up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's She'll love it. Strike slip on Mars is amazing. All right, Monty, anything uh, while we... I've got one uh, from Gary Heinemeyer. Is that right? What? Gary Was Heinemeyer. he listening to this? Yeah, oh, yeah. So he says, I have been enjoying watching your webinar, and it's very well done. All of the black breaches and layered black micropyroclastics I have noted for years in working on gold deposits must have kerogen per your web presentation. I even have pictures of feeders for these from Rawhide and White River. Pretty neat. You guys would agree? Kerogen should yeah, be Yeah, I have no problem with that. Uh, there's a lot of kerogenous veining in Carlin-type deposits in particular. And in fact, in a number of them, Yankee being a notable example, uh, there's actually hydrocarbon seeps where there was enough hydrogen around to get to the oil window a hydrothermal oil window. Dan Lox has showed up. There's Ron Luthie. Uh -oh, there he is, fly on the wall. <laughs> Sophia. Oh man, that's awesome to see you guys on the list. Uh, Dan, let's see, I'm gonna promote you, see what you do. <laughs> you don't have to turn on your mic or anything. But well, we, Dan can tell us a little bit about early Magma Chem days. Right, right. We did make stories, if nothing else. Right, did make us an introduction. I don't know if you saw that or not. There's oh Dan. my God, there he there. is. Uh, I have to agree with everyone else that uh, I'm amazed that you guys did this uh, so well. And, uh, <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Yeah, I would have to give Troy all the credit for uh, <laughs> what do you think about Stan. Well, he tries to write hard on him. In. Yeah. As you saw, I resisted him several times. Dan, so... No. Take us through a little bit of your perspective on this. When you showed up with Stan, how did you cross paths with Magma Chem? You're highly, obviously highly uh, regarded by everybody. I mean, Dan, you've been such an important part of this story. How did that all happen? Well, I uh, had a, a summer job at Carlin Gold, and I wanted a full-time job there, but uh, I was That's too right. green, I guess. And uh, so uh, I uh, didn't get one, and they would have had me uh, – ridge and spur soil sampling until the snow flew but i decided screw that i'm going to go audit classes at asu and uh get into grad school so i take western regional geology and oh, uh, three quarters of the class is working for magma chem <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the glory uh, days they were um hand plotting all the pet chem data Pre computers. Hand, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, pre computers. So, in any case, um, I came on board and uh, I was one of the lucky ones because I didn't have to hand plot pet chem data. 
<laughs> I got to uh, draft uh, all the uh, Exxon time slice maps. Wow. And uh, from there, I got into uh, compiling mineral district information because uh, Stan also had uh, quick and dirty uh, mineral district maps for uh, all the Western states. Wow. And so um, I just fit That's right part in. part of the Exxon compilation. Right. Uh, so the Magma Kim Research Institute is obviously built by the community that we're building. I mean, this is all we got. Uh, we're doing everything we have to, to continue to do these, these presentations. So we wanted everyone to focus on the magma metal series approach and really understand the mantle side of this. So that's the first publication that you can get access to, along with major other available public publications that are free to you after you become a member. They have a lot of information too. So this is definitely where you want to begin in order for us to get the most value out of these courses. We, it sets you up for that. And so now when you go into introduction and anomalies, you'll understand what it was. And then there'll be a video that you have available to you and forever that you can watch this conversation and you'll have every slide that we created for this presentation. So that's what you're getting in these courses. Um, well, they get the audio too. Oh yeah. Audio video. And next week we're going to the geology of Kerrigan. We're going from how is Kerrigan universal? Why, how that discoveries from Mars and everything else that's happened on meteorites. How does that play now into the layered mantle? The dynamic earth model that Magma Kim has, and how do you bring it up to the surface? That's, that's where we're going with geology of Kerrigan. Um, the, the next one, as Stan has somewhat approved, serpentinization and steatization. This is kind of that transition area, getting into the subcritical, uh, supercritical boundary. Hydrogenating carrageen. You're going from primordial, low carrageen TOC quantity, but incredible volume, scale size volume. You hydrogenate that through serpentinization and steatization, and now you get the carrageen that's ready to make oil. And you get more of it. And then we get into... Uh, supercritical, subcritical, how diamondoids are absolutely important. And when you run the analysis you need, which Magma Kim has done for many years on diamondoids, it fits into your story. It totally helps you find where that high productive zone is for oil generation. And then we'll, we'll just go down the list. And so every time you come in, you get access to what we just did. So if you miss it, it's here. You can come back and for a minimum donation, you can get access to all of this stuff. Uh, but if you're, you're, if you, if you're in it and you say, I just, I, can I, can I just see it again? Yeah, you can, of course you can. Let's do it again. And let's, let's, let's integrate some ideas. But at the end of the day, we're a nonprofit that's trying to, to put something out there of value that is, that is a resource and it's, it's, you know, it's worth your time and certainly worth your money. Uh, so that's, that's the goal with getting through this mud volcanism and jecti. And then this one at the end is the application of this through the Gouda case history that you guys did in Norway and these final maps and this final presentation is, is it, I think it's a, it's a, it's a guide to help anyone de-risk their investment of their time and attention on a resource play. Sure. Monty, any final words? Final word is, uh, thank you, Stan for, Oh man. Being so articulate and a just great stream of consciousness through the whole, I, I really appreciate it. And, and Troy, you're the glue that's holding this all together. 
I, I want to say the fragile thread is not a fragile thread. It's, it's a pretty strong uh, cord that's holding this. So thank you so much. Thank you, Monty.